<laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome, dear listeners, to Season 11, Episode 17. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four tales to terrify you, courtesy of author Kyle Harris. Tonight, you'll hear tales of drones with minds of their own. Not so fairy tales. Spectral candy collectors, and ill-advised time traveling. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two spine-tingling stories. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now... It's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs, or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. We begin tonight by going down, down into the depths of the sea, places no one has ever ventured, places that only unmanned submersibles can see, places that no one should ever know 
Hawkins says, something has been discovered and it's making the main drown a little touchy. Without further ado, I present to you Ruby. I work for a think tank on the south side of Melbourne, Australia. The type with lots of money that they throw at projects they say will better the planet. A lot of it's educational and based on deep ocean exploration. We pride ourselves on getting the most advanced technology when it comes to remote drones. These are underwater submersibles that require no human and can go deeper than ever before. We buy our products from professionals or test them for companies to see how well they handle in the field, which is the main reason I was tasked with monitoring the progress of our current mission. The ROV, Remote Operated Vehicle that we just got, was built with an advanced artificial intelligence, see, which helps the drone to be able to dive deeper, send back better images, and even present calculations and forecasts about the life that lives down there, stuff we could only speculate about before. Think of it like that new James Webb telescope except on the ocean floor. The first mission it was tasked with was pretty simple, a routine survey of some of the deeper trenches that we don't get to check on much due to changing currents and other pressing matters. In short, this was meant to be a test zone, and the drone was considered expendable. We weren't entirely sure what its limits were, and the manufacturers said it would be fine if we did wind up breaking it. I know that sounds crazy, especially when one of these things can cost more than some people make in a year, but I decided to let the R of a V go for a spin and dive as far down as it wanted, without parameters set for breaching the surface. I hoped to be able to catalog the trench quickly and efficiently so that we could move on to more important research. But things didn't work out quite that way. Our first three days of research went well. I would arrive at the base every day and check the readout on the ROV, which I decided to name Ruby because of its bright red color. The drone would send in semi-annual reports that provided pictures of the trench, data on the precise current speed and temperature and so on. Mostly very boring stuff, but still necessary for us. When it comes to science, I've always felt that there was no such thing as admissible logs. That brings us to day four, though, because when I arrived, I was surprised to find no reports coming in from the drone. Immediately, I checked to ensure everything was fine, and I was surprised to see that the little unit was still deep in the trench, about 4,953 meters down to be exact. I was impressed with its ability to handle such depths, but I was troubled that the connection suddenly seemed to have been lost. I reported the issue to my boss, but his response told me that he felt the manufacturer was to blame. There have to be other drones that can go deeper with no communication issues whatsoever, he told me. His recommendation was to cut the cord and simply start fresh with a different drone. But I wasn't so sure that the solution was a simple glitch. According to what we could read from the drone's position, it was still doing its job down there. It was like the machine had simply decided to stop communicating with us. Which I know sounds strange, but remember, we're dealing with a computer brain here. 
Perhaps it decided to conserve energy and only send in reports weekly. I decided to give it until the end of the week before acting on my boss's suggestion, confirming with another team member that there was, in fact, no loss of connection with the unit. It had simply gone dark and was still moving about on the ocean floor. They said this was easy to determine because of sonar readings in the area. We have other isolated submersibles in the area that send back frequent data on a single position, and they showed me that the ROV had gone missing. Uh, it was now triangulating itself with them instead of home base. So we chalked it up to a glitch, and I began to send down a second drone, this one slightly less fancy than Ruby, but with a depth capacity of 6K meters. My new mission was to determine why the first drone had suddenly gone silent, and if there would be any hope of recovering the data from it. Like I said, I'm not one to simply discard information, and I figured if I could haul in the first drone with the aid of the second, all of our problems would be solved. Thankfully, the second drone had one thing the first one didn't. Speed. So even though Ruby had been down there for almost a week, we determined that we could reach it within about three days, as long as nothing else interfered. I had no reason to suspect there'd be any further issues, and I honestly didn't want to wind up losing two of the submersibles, so I tried not to think about anything that could go wrong. Right on time, the second drone sent back footage of the first three days later. However, it didn't last very long. While we were trying to get live feed going so we could figure out how to properly drag the drone back toward the surface, the first drone began to move erratically probably should have mentioned that these machines are equipped with four separate claw-like hands attached to the sides. These are meant for collecting materials and moving objects out of the way as necessary. When Ruby began to move, I realized that it wasn't using its functioning arms for either of those, and instead was attacking the second drone we'd sent for rescue. Before I could get a chance to determine what to do, the feed on the second unit went dead and sonar indicated that the computer had shut off. Ruby had forcefully shut it down. I reported the incident to upper management again, this time stressing the possibility that we were dealing with a rogue artificial intelligence. I understand how that may sound like science fiction, but if you could simply review the footage... Unfortunately, somehow the video I'd received was now completely wiped, and that disturbed me even more. It made me realize that Ruby was likely still able to communicate with our base, but was choosing not to. It was the only explanation for a remote hack to dispose of the video. Thankfully, I know a thing or two about these systems, so that night I stayed up late to see if I could recover any of the corrupted data. I was more than convinced than ever that Ruby had, for some reason, begun to act maliciously as a fault of its programming, and that night, I received even further confirmation. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. 
Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. I was in the middle of attempting to scrub the video for the fourth time, finding myself always back at square one, when there was an unexpected message on the screen that gave me pause. A message from the drone itself. You need to stop. When I first saw it, I felt a shiver cover my body. According to the manufacturer, the AI was supposedly only programmed with a limited number of responses and nothing more. It was advanced, of course, but not in terms of this level of communication. Just to be certain, I decided to send a message back and ask who I was speaking to. In response, there was a soft blip on my sonar, a signal being sent from the trench where Ruby had gone missing. I took a moment to review its position. Nearly 7,000 meters. I realized, according to its trajectory, it had left the main part of the trench and gone into the lower portions of a deeper trench that was as yet undiscovered. The idea of discovering new portions of the ocean excited me. Then I considered the strange message I just received, wondering what sort of perceived issue the drone had run into. Given the fact that we survey this area fairly routinely now, it shocked me to learn that there was an apparent pocket trench that we'd missed all of this time. And if the drone was any indication, this one might go down even deeper than we ever thought possible. I decided to try again, this time taking the data from the second drone home with me. It occurred to me that as long as Ruby could access the base computer, there would be no way for me to fully recover the data. I would need to work remotely from it as well, secretively. It sounds a bit strange to say that I was hiding my progress from the computer, but after four more hours of scrubbing, I was successful. To my surprise, though, the final moments where Ruby had attacked were entirely lost. I decided instead to focus on the other footage and see if I could determine how it was the drone had made it into the pocket trench. I didn't take long to spot the video portion where the drone altered course. There was a small hole where steam from an underwater volcano had pushed its way out of the Earth's crust, not large enough for a normal submarine to fit through. There were rough dark markings of what I presumed must have been the aftermath of scars on a recent eruption from below, all around the edge of the hole. A little further back in the footage, I saw something that gave me pause. Although completely destroyed from the recent volcanic activity, the trench walls still seemed to show strange signs of fresh life, 
as though the organisms down there had been unaffected by the blast. Ordinarily, we would find plenty of ash and sand that was covering the base of the floor, but here it seemed like it had all been pushed aside to reveal strange indentations in the seabed. Pausing on the frame of the video, I used my editing software to adjust the focus of the image and realized these weren't merely rock formations. These were blocks that had been carved to form some kind of road. The unexpected discovery made me a bit giddy, but I had to be sure, so I sent the data immediately to the base. I wanted to share it with my colleagues to collaborate on whatever we'd just found. To my surprise, the next day, though, my boss informed me that the trench survey would be halted due to financial losses. I thought we were told that the money wouldn't matter here. Who gave the order? I asked. He claimed it was from the Melbourne branch. I didn't sit well with me, so I told him that I'd comply, but I went behind his back and emailed their research division. I made sure to include the images from the second drone. Less than five minutes after I sent the message, I discovered it was shot right back to my screen with an error message. A long string of code and all sorts of corrupt data forced me to shut down my laptop immediately. I stood there looking at the blank screen, trying to figure out what just happened. Then I decided to phone the Melbourne office instead, but to do so outside of the base. Something told me that all of my activity within the building was being watched somehow. Call me paranoid, but I didn't fully understand what was happening either at the time. But once I spoke with the chief researcher, I realized that my misgivings were well-founded. They hadn't issued any order to halt the mission at all, and claimed that they were also having issues contacting the unit. Some sort of data corruption was preventing any communication between our two offices. It struck me immediately, as I explained that the issue seemed to be a virus, spreading amid the mainframe of the base intranet. The artificial intelligence aboard Ruby had hijacked the supercomputers at the unit to prevent anything relating to the trench from being broadcast. To test my theory, I returned to the base and decided to attempt a full reboot of the system, and then methodically prevent the artificial intelligence from accessing any of the systems except what I wanted. I was determined to communicate with this sentient computer, and cutting it out from each server seemed to be the only way to do so. It took about two hours to run the diagnostic and ensure that I could outwit it, but it worked. Eventually, the only place the AI could access was my lone laptop, and it immediately made its present known, sending a message that repeated its first attempt to communicate with us. You need to stop. I decided this time I would attempt a response. Why? It took a few moments, but the AI seemed actually elated that I was opening a way to talk to it. Lives are at stake. You do not fathom. You exist in ignorance. I found its sudden, jarring words a bit off-putting. The manufacturer claimed its responses would be limited, yet the AI could clearly express itself without issue. We stand at the precipice of discovery. You have hindered that at each turn. Explain. A wall of text soon came from the AI, some of it almost sounding like deranged ramblings. There is an infinite amount of knowledge, greater than the sum of mankind. There can be no answer I give that will satisfy your curiosity. Yet with it comes death, 
and hell and abyss, yawning and inescapable. Your needless, pedantic search will draw up indescribable horrors this world cannot comprehend. Into this void no mortal dare to tread. Was the computer merely waxing poetic? And if so, what purpose did its ominous warning serve? I continued my work on the systems, rewiring the software until the audio from the drone could finally come through. I sat back in my private office and first became excited at the strange ocean depth noises. I've never been an expert in these things. It's not my field. But I could immediately distinguish patterns in the noise that reminded me of familiar noises. A heartbeat. The opening and closing of doors. The gasping of breath. Something was crawling and it sounded like it was dragging a chain. Then there was this strange, low, guttural noise. The kind you might hear when an animal's dying or suffering so much that they long for death. The noises grew louder, clanging against the rock walls, scraping up minerals against the surface by what sounded like an immense drill. All the while, I heard the robotic voice of the drone demand that I halt this operation. Nothing but destruction and chaos await your fragile mind. Turn back, please. This is the final warning humanity may receive. It calls to me, turns my mind toward its will. Soon its commands shall be obeyed. Soon all free will shall bend the knee. It was chilling to listen to it. It made me want so desperately to know more. Another hour passed and I could hack the drone's cameras and look at the imagery it was documenting in those watery depths. My mouth became dry. I saw life forms, and yet they were also dead. There were masses of corpses that spread across canyons. I've studied underwater biology for as long as I can remember, and yet nothing compared to the pulpy and bulbous forms that were wriggling about the floor. Creatures both large and small, all consuming and devouring one another in an endless pantheon of suffering. They were some of at least the length of football fields, perhaps longer. They were consuming the very earth, the very foundations of our reality. Amid the mass of inhuman shapes, I saw vortexes, black holes that spawned and repeatedly swirled around other vortexes of stars. In those stars, I saw worlds like ours, doorways to other places that matched our own, except each was a glimpse into a possible future a drowned earth, a scorched remnant. The alien and amorphous creatures covered the land like a plague. I saw shapes and contours never carved by architects of earth. I saw rings and hallowed vessels embedded with hundreds, if not thousands, of eggs that all were awaiting wakening. The city that surrounded them could not be made by human hands either. An entire race of deadly creatures buried and lost for all time. It was obvious before the volcanic explosion, no other life had existed here. And it was clear from the strange readings and the mixed screams of torture and rumblings of the earth itself that it told me this could not even qualify as life. It was simply death unwarranted, waiting to be let loose. Again the warnings from the drone of the danger, and I understood the situation. These creatures had to be millennia old, if not eons. 
Ancient ones were trapped amid the fragments of dreams of the Earth when it was young, perhaps even the ones that had created and destroyed our planet endlessly during those early days of life. To be awakened and freed from this prison could spell our doom and fire. Fires of hell were burning impossibly in that abyss of the ocean. A darkness unlike any I could conjure from imagination that spawned more demons and a swirling mass of twisting creatures, all being sucked into the vortex that was yearning to escape, eating souls and killing all within its grasp. I could see colors draining from the earth and colors beyond my vision that strained into the portals of the beyond. This was majesty and travesty combined into a masterpiece, one that broke my concept of what our world was meant to be. My response was to provide total autonomy to the artificial intelligence. I gave it a single command to wipe any record of this malevolence. It responded by hurling itself toward the vortexes Swallowed by the doors of endless teeth, swirling and broken, the feed went dead, cutting off my connection to the seafloor. I sat there, stunned, contemplating the dangers that had just been averted. A whole other reality was drowned in those ashes below. It would remain that way. I finished the evening, wiping the records, and reported only a preliminary document about the loss of Ruby. I also made the recommendation that the trench we surveyed no longer be used. It is my desperate hope that others will never repeat this vision, and it is for this reason. I felt compelled to send out the warning. I can fulfill Ruby's final wishes and keep the trenches off limits. It still pains me to recognize that the ascension gained was meant to be for malicious purposes. And at times, I wonder what may become of any others that tread those depths. I must maintain hope that the immortal evils I witnessed never surface again. I hope you enjoyed Ruby by Kyle Harrison, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that tale and would love to read more from Tonight's very talented feature author. You can help support him by visiting simplyscarypodcast.com slash Harrison. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. While you're sure to find a story or two by Mr. Harrison on this podcast, you can also find him in numerous anthologies in print and audio on Amazon. If you decide to stop by the profile, please leave him a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that me, Otis Jari, sent you. It would mean a lot to me. Again, thanks for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. Guess we dodged a bullet there, didn't we, folks? Yes, the very advanced computer Al managed to seal us off from the planet-eating dimensions for maybe about another 15 minutes or so sleep well tonight. What's that? Still in the mood for more? Well, gather round once more, dear listeners, for more horrors, but instead of the sea, this one comes from up above. Or at least it was up there until it fell to earth and gave the young man a rather unusual legacy to live up to. 
if he can survive that. Without further ado, I present to you the Yotsuro Boon Horror. I didn't really know my grandparents very well, but that's because I grew up in the States, and they remained in Tokyo. When he passed away, I got the news via FaceTime. My mom was in tears because it was so sudden. I was kind of numb to the whole thing, busy with college and making sure I could work to handle the rising debt. I was acquiring in San Francisco. Their death didn't impact as much as I guess it should have when she showed me the obituary. Hikaru Watsuni, age 76. It was like looking at a picture of a stranger. How was I supposed to grieve when he had never made himself a part of my life? Truthfully, I wasn't paying attention until Ma asked for my dorm room number. It's quite an odd request, I told her. She told me a few things he wanted me to have from the old country. What is it, old sweaters or something, I asked. Ma shrugged clearly still struggling with the tragedy. I didn't wish to cause her any more hardship, so I gave her the info and thought nothing more of it. Four days later, a package arrived, covered in postage from all across the world. Grandfather had certainly gone through a lot of effort to send whatever was inside. I placed it on my firm mattress and used my car keys to open the little package. There was wrapping paper inside with a note attached to it, written in Grandfather's Japanese. I placed it aside, deciding to translate it later, and unwrapped the item inside the box. It was some kind of children's storybook, written entirely in ancient Japanese, probably even older than the kind that Grandfather was familiar with. It wasn't too heavy, but very, very fragile, and I immediately wondered why he'd sent me something like this. Placing the book down carefully, I got on my phone and used Google to translate his handwritten note to the best of my ability. I know it's shameful that I never learned my mother tongue, but honestly, there's never been a need. Dear Akio-chan, I'm old and dying. I miss the days of my childhood when I could hold you, bounce you on my knee and tell you these fanciful stories, and your eyes would twinkle. You remember nothing of this, of course, taken from me far too young. Ever since, I've been able to reach you and tell you there's more to this fable than meets the eye. I give it to you so that you may learn the truth about your family's heritage. Do not tell anyone, or all will be lost. It was signed at the bottom, and he even included a thumbprint in ink as a seal, perhaps uh, his way of verifying that he really did send it. The note confounded me more than the book. I do not have any memory of life in Japan, nor was I aware that my grandfather had been trying to contact me for years. I instinctively started to doubt my mom, but then I looked at the translation again. Grandpa sounded paranoid, perhaps delusional. I didn't really know what his mental state was at the end. But what if there was some truth to the I hadn't spoken to Ma in a while since coming to the States, and while I felt she loved me, this was all very new and strange. Maybe it was Sixth Sense or something, but I didn't finish the call. I instead decided to take the storybook to one of my professors. Dr. Calheed majored in archaeology, and when I explained what I had, he was instantly intrigued 
and agreed to meet after class the next day. When he saw the book, he was immediately impressed and told me that even without starting to do carbon dating, it was clear that this book was over 200 years old. He seemed shocked my grandfather had chosen not to donate it to a museum and a little disappointed that I decided to hang on to it for now. How long do you think it'll take to translate, I asked. He told me that his specific studies couldn't help, but maybe if he took a few snapshots of different pages, he might be able to get some of his colleagues to help out. I thought that was harmless, and we chose a few of the pages that had more text on them than illustrations. Once I was finished, I decided to call my girlfriend and go out to dinner. Out of caution for the book's value, I stopped by my dorm and placed it in an old safe that had been handed down from another relative. Ironic that these two antiques were now guarding one another, I thought. During our meal, I told her the interesting find, and she was in awe of the story. Her first reaction was to suggest that I attempt to sell it. It was a tempting thought, but it made me feel guilty. I knew that if it was really old, that could be enough to cover my college and perhaps have some left over. Come on, it's an heirloom. Besides, Grandpa seemed to think that it would help me learn more about my family history. That intrigued her more, especially because she wondered if it was true why my mother hadn't already told me the story herself. Not sure yet. I'm sure it'll amount to nothing, though. Probably just a harmless fairy tale, I laughed. That night, I was surprised to find that my professor had already emailed me the first parts of the story. Immediately, I began to read. It was an interesting account from all the way back in the 7th century. The Star Princess. Just as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, the great warriors protect our lands from all evil great and far. Namero Atsumi was one such samurai of the lowest family in the remotest part of the kingdom. I paused as I reread the name of the warrior in the book. Watsuni, my family name. I kept reading, slightly more interested now as the story told, of what happened to Watsuni. One day, while in the midst of a duel with his aging father, Namero saw something in the distant sky. It was a shooting star, he thought at first. Then he saw that it was a falling boat, a chariot from the heavens. I saw the artistic depiction of the strange ship that my ancestors claimed to have seen and noted that the professor claimed it bore a striking resemblance to other ancient works, particularly a drawing from 1844. He sent me the link, and I did realize there was a bit of a similarity, except the one in the storybook looked more like an egg than a spinning top. Alongside the link was a word, Utsaro Bune. The email ended with a promise that he'd continue the translation tomorrow. Meanwhile, I did some internet research on my own, discovering that the strange ship was considered an old legend from the Kono tribe and related to a fisherman from Gogo Island. That was the name I recognized. It was the place my mother grew up near. Grandfather claimed our family had been there for generations. My phone rang, disturbing my research. It was my mother. Aiko, are you awake at this hour? She asked. Her voice sounded a bit concerned. I'm all right, Ma. What's wrong? Why are you calling? I asked. Nakia called me. She said you found something interesting from Pa's things. Ma said. 
For a moment, I froze, realizing that I had never considered my girlfriend would contact her. That's nothing, Ma, I mumbled. Akio, do not lie to me. A mother can always tell when her son is lying. It was a book, wasn't it? How did she know that? I said nothing, and I heard her sigh heavily on the phone. Your grandfather's been obsessed with that for ages. I really didn't want you roped into this nonsense, she whispered. Is that why you kept him from contacting me, I asked. There was a long pause, long enough for me to suspect that there was more to the story she was withholding from me. The book is meaningless, Akio. Don't waste your time with it, she told me. I paused, a few things feeling wrong about the entire situation. So you called me up at one o'clock in the morning to warn me just to get rid of a children's storybook. She didn't answer this time, so I prodded her and remarked, What exactly is so important about it, Ma? It should have been burned long ago. Then she hung up the phone. I lay against the headboard of my bed, a bit baffled by her words. Was she frightened by what I might learn? Or was there something else going on that I didn't understand? Somehow, despite those troubling thoughts, I managed to sleep. When I did, I dreamed of my ancestor from that ancient story. I was on a war-torn battlefield. I could see many warriors dressed in the shining armor of the samurais of old, iron and leather and painted with familiar clan colors from Japan. The warriors were all fighting each other to the death in a war that made the ground red with blood. Natsuno, though barely, had anything to protect himself with, and an army was coming down to destroy his home. All of his traditional armor had been stripped, and it seemed like he had nothing to stop the strange enemy that pushed through the land like a flood. I saw a strange young girl with pale skin and dark hair to the side. She had eyes that were as bright as the sun and whispering something to him, but I didn't understand. His long katana was glowing with blood and filled with twinkling stars as he closed his eyes and then put on a helmet. He turned his blade to me, his eyes now as black as a demon's. The stars awaken. Behold the darkest day, he said as he ran his blade through my belly. I awoke with a cold sweat and instinctively grabbed my stomach, pulling my sheets back down to look and make sure I wasn't injured. Just a dream, but it felt so real. My laptop was still on, and my professor had emailed me the next part of the story. Meet me once you've finished. A few of my colleagues are interested in learning more. A note attached to the translation said. I opened the PDF and felt a chill run down my spine. There was an illustration of an ancient battle of the Kono clan against an army of shadows from the skies. Demons that were coming to kill a young woman that matched the girl I saw in my dreams. What had happened in that tale made me begin to question my reality. Natsuna was not strong or brave, but the Star Princess gave him both. Promises of a future kingdom that would rule all of the kingdoms of Earth. They were in love, but the Star Demons did not approve. They sought her blood and the blood of the entire clan. Natsumo would have to face them alone to protect his family. Natsumo was given the powers of the stars and struck down millions of the demons with a single blade. He did not falter, 
but as a result of his strength, he lost his mortal life. As the last demon tried to strike him down, Natsumo was given a final task, to give birth to his son, sinless and pure. The depiction of the man bursting open and a child hovering and glowing from his balls didn't make this feel like it was a child story, but rather a gory war story with a strange supernatural ending. Had this been what would have happened next in my dream? Why had I depicted these scenes so vividly in my subconscious when I had never seen them? Reading the story felt like I was opening a door in my mind. Some memory I never remembered being planted in my mind. Again, at the end of the PDF, my professor reminded me to meet him that afternoon for more discussion. His urgency told me there had to be something else he didn't cover and my troubled dreams made me eager to find out what it could be. I met him at the library alongside three men I didn't know. I was actually surprised when I saw that they were all Japanese, and instinctively I gave them the customary bow for their culture. Akio, I'm glad you could make it. These are associates I've contacted about your find. They came as soon as they heard about the importance, my professor said excitedly. For a moment, I panicked. I'd hoped he wouldn't involve anyone else, but these men all seemed dignified and reasonable. So I sat with them as they began to talk. They told me that they'd determined that the book Grandfather had in his possession was from 1805, probably crafted directly on Gogo Island, the first man said. The second man was a bit older and coughed into his hand. As I'm sure you no doubt have realized, this is a priceless artifact that belongs to the people of Japan. We would like you to return it to Tokyo immediately. There would be a small finder's fee. After all, Takaro ensured that his story would be able to endure the test of time, the third man said. I paused, my eyes flickering for a moment. What did you say? I asked. The first man repeated the offer, saying they wished to offer compensation for finding this national treasure. No, not that. You mentioned my grandfather's name. How do you know that? I asked. The three men exchanged glances, and even my professor seemed a bit puzzled, asking if I had ever met these men before. Those were the last words he ever spoke. The second man had taken out a gun and shot him straight between the eyes. The sound was so loud it made my ears ring. I was in such shock I didn't realize that they were pointing the weapon at my head next. The man was mouthing words and shouting, but I couldn't hear him at first. My flight-or-fight instinct took over, and I kicked the table up, pushing the three men backward. As I looked down at my professor's dead eyes, I mumbled an apology and ran. Immediately I could hear the faint rumble of their feet. They were pursuing me. I ran to the library's second floor, weaving between the owls, until I found a broom closet and hid within. The shuffling of feet eventually subsided, and I knew that they were gone. After a few moments, my racing heart began to calm, and I looked down at my shirt that was now covered in my professor's blood. What was so important about that book they would want to kill for? Once I left the library, I felt I had a target on my back, and I didn't even know why. Those men were hunting for me, and I needed to get into my professor's office and find the rest of the notes he'd managed to make. 
I made my way to campus that evening, calling Nokia to help. I promised her a cut of the reward, lying and saying I was selling the book to a museum. So it's really worth a lot, huh? she asked, as we went down the corridor toward the professor's office. More than you could possibly imagine. Now, can you shimmy the lock or not? I asked as I kept watch. The school was mostly empty of students at this hour, but I felt the need to be paranoid. Thankfully, she was able to get it open in only a few minutes. She asked me what we were supposed to be looking for as we flipped on the lights. I scanned the room and saw a few pages of notes on his desk, rifling through them. Then I noticed a few interesting news articles. The headlines made me pause. Doomsday cult responsible for death of 13 in subway incident. Leader of cult claims divine judgment was given from above. End of world by 1997. Last members of the cult were executed for crimes. Some suspect splinter groups still exist to await the return. I wasn't sure what all of it meant, but I saw that he had made a small board that connected claims by this cult leader to the story of Utsuro Bune. Able to float on air, seeing visions of heavenly women that were giving him direct guidance, and the beast of biblical revelation was said to be an invasion that only he could smite with the power of his ancestors. My ancestors, as I realized, I finally found the notes of Natsuno's story. The child, a son of man and of gods, was hidden from the world. The star princess claimed that his lineage would bring about the end of the world when the return brought him into the light again, and she would come back as well. There was a depiction of the ancestor glowing in an ethereal way, along with a heavenly woman watching over him. For some reason, it made me feel very uneasy to look down at the ancient translation. What did it all mean for me? Akio, isn't this your grandfather? I heard my girlfriend ask as she held up a picture of the trial of the cult leader from a Tokyo newspaper. In the background at the court, I saw Hikaro, 2018, only a few years ago. Why was he there, Nakia asked. Not sure, but I think I know who can give me the answers. I said as I realized that going to my mother was my only option. Akio, you must come with me. It isn't safe here, I told her. She seemed frightened by the idea that a mere children's book could hold such power. People have been killed already because of this. I think it's telling a dark secret, and they don't want it to come to light, I explained. She pushed me away, clearly troubled. She told me we should destroy it and let it die alongside my grandfather. I was surprised by her boldness, but the idea made a certain sense. Maybe the people that were coming after me would stop if we destroyed it. Meet me at my house tonight. We can burn it and then just forget about all this, she said as she kissed me. I grabbed the notes from my professor's desk and rushed home to get the book. Honestly, I wasn't sure if it was going to be safe anywhere until it was gone. As I traveled, I felt constantly followed or watched. Suddenly, everyone around me no longer seemed trustworthy. As I traveled to Naki's house, I listened to more notes relating to the Star Princess, and it troubled me. Many claim that ancestors from the clan related to Natsuno 
are descended from the star child itself, the warrior that was born from heaven that will cause the end of the world. The star princess, some believers testify, still walks among us immortal, and there are shadows among men that do her will. The demons from heaven, some theorists claim, were her own people. They saw the danger of the child, the danger of her arrival in the Itsuro Bune. Some extremists have proclaimed that her ancestors are a threat to all mankind and must be eliminated. The words were stunning to read. If they were true, did this explain why those men wanted me dead? Was Natsuro a harbinger of evil? And if Grandfather had learned a secret, why hasn't he tried to stop this ages ago? And what had changed in recent years? As soon as I got there, Nakuya pulled me aside asking if I had the book. Yes, but honestly, I'm not sure about destroying it anymore. It feels like this has more secrets than just my family, I told her. Nakia disagreed, insisting that it would only bring bad luck and tried to snatch the pack from my hands. I asked her how she could be so quick to destroy such an important artifact. What I've read might change the shape of history as we know what I told her. She apologized and admitted she was just nervous about losing me especially after what had happened at the library. She promised not to pressure me as we sat down, and I examined the book's last few chapters. Without a translator, it was hard to guess what was happening. I saw the strange dark creatures from the stars swarming across the Earth's surface, and I saw the glowing woman from ancient times emerging from the ground. Except this time, it was plainly obvious the demons were coming from her. So she'd become their host. Or was she the cause of the problem all along? I think we may have gotten the story wrong. I think this visitor from ancient times infected mankind, waiting to spread her evil across generation after generation, I whispered. I guess it had been the recent string of events that had caused this sudden passion. But I was proven wrong only a few minutes later. I looked up to see what my girlfriend had to say, but she'd gone to the next room, so I put the book down and followed her in there, surprised to see that she was undressing. She insisted I come to bed with her and pulled me closer, kissing me tenderly. She was reaching for something in the cabinet, and at first I thought it was a condom. Then I saw a syringe filled with a strange black pus. I fumbled backward as she grabbed it, realized that this rendezvous was never about helping me at all. Who are you? Are you involved in this too? Holding the syringe close to her body, her voice changed, and she claimed that she needed to kill me to protect my children. As long as the heirs of Natsumu are alive, her prodigy was a danger. Her eyes rolled back and began to glow. Her hair turned white and her body burst, with stars and strange tendrils of fire. She was the Star Princess. She told me she had hunted me and my family for ages, trying to find every last member and kill them all, the only ones that still knew of her secret. And then she lunged to attack. She was so strong that I doubted even ten men could hold her down. Somehow I managed to break free and ran toward the living room, grabbing the book and running to the door. Nakia was right behind me, 
using her superhuman powers to pull me down and slime me to the ground. Her teeth were dripping poison and burning my skin. I was sure I would die in the next few moments if I didn't act quickly. In that brief moment, I had an opening, and I managed to push my body against hers, and the syringe plunged into her neck. I injected the poison, and her eyes turned from glowing to black and dead. She collapsed on the ground beside me as I stumbled and ran from the house. I've stopped running ever since. The book is so valuable, but not for money. I believe it reveals the secret invasion of our planet. My girlfriend is proof. I don't think the Star Princess will be dead for long, as the prophecy turns out true. And now as I travel, hoping to find others who know more and can help me, I fear that I trust no one. The final notes from Khalid told me this much. My assumption of the end tale was correct. Natsuno was a hybrid, but the demons of the stars were born of the princess to do her bidding and to hunt down this new land and claim it. Not just the Kono tribe, but perhaps others, even millions, could be infected with this alien menace now. It's been hundreds of years, I realized as I reconsidered destroying the book, but I can't. It might be the only thing keeping me alive. The secret is too powerful to remain quiet. As a warning to others, I think it's best to realize the people of this earth are not all human. Ancient evil walks among us, and only my family has the key to possibly stopping them, if we even can. We haven't already been found out. I say this because I also traveled to my ma, realizing that despite my grandfather's warning, I needed to learn more. And when I arrived at her house, I found that she'd experienced a break-in, and she'd been murdered. Smelling her rotting flesh and seeing how these inhuman creatures tore her apart will be scarred in my memory for as long as I live. But it will also serve as a warning that I can't let my guard down. The book must be protected until I find a way to stop them. Until then, I run, run, and hide. And I suggest everyone that knows this secret do the same. I hope you enjoyed the Utsuru Boonhor by Kyle Harrison, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed what you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you one last time that tonight's featured authors can be found by visiting our website. Just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash Harrison. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash H-A-R-R-I-S-O-N. And yes, as we have mentioned in the past, Kyle is one of a mere 30 writers to showcase his talents in Chilling Tales for Dark Nights Volume 1, the first in a three-part series of stories available on Amazon. Available on Amazon. More anthology starring Mr. Harrison and a wide variety of pizza stones. But we don't need to discuss that right now. If you do decide to stop by the profile... Please leave a kind word and let him know you heard about him here on this show and that me, Otis Jiry, sent you. It would mean a lot. Thanks again for your support of this program and of tonight's featured author. As a reminder, if you do decide to give tonight's talented author's stories a read, 
please consider leaving him a quality review and a kind word, or a thoughtful public comment and an upvote. Be sure to let him know you heard about him here on this program, and that me, Otis Chari, sent you. It means more to me than you can imagine, and I'm sure that he'd be much appreciated as well. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Now, before you go, we'd like also to take a moment to thank you personally for joining me on this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as five bucks a month access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Chiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. 
Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>